And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us today is Dr. E. Calvin Beisner, President, Founder, and National Spokesman of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Cal, it's a great honor to have you on with us today. Oh, thank you, Dan. Uh, the honor is much more mine. It's it's really, really a privilege to be on the show with you. Thank you. Uh, well, I've always appreciated you, and um, you've really got your arms around the whole energy thing and caring for the earth while extracting energy from the earth that in usable form. Um, but I'm going to let you speak to that more. There was an article, actually, that... Uh, recently came out with the title, and it's kind of a question uh, title, Must Fossil Fuel Extraction Be Stopped to Limit Global Warming? And that's a very good question. It catches the eye. And listening to some of the newscasts, maybe many, people might say, oh, we've got to stop extracting fossil fuel from the earth, we're hurting the earth, or, you know, CO2, we're getting too much CO2. And so, can you get us started? Tell us a little bit about this article here. Yeah. Yeah, well, Dan, um, actually, let me go back a little farther than that, I guess, uh, to talk about why in the world should Christians, (laughs) in particular, be concerned about this? Oh, yeah. How in the world is this even a Christian matter? Uh, Is it something on which Christians should, for some reason, think perhaps differently from non-Christians. And first I'd say there can be an awful lot of overlap between Christian and non-Christian thought about this, but I think that Christians have uh, a sort of a foundation from which to approach this that really does give us uh, a special perspective that at least rules out some thinking about it. And let me put it this way. Um, to, to build the contrast between what is typical in the environmentalist movement and a Christian understanding, let me just describe sort of the basic framework of environmental thinking this way. That is that nature is a very delicately balanced system that is very nurturing of all life, including human life, if we just don't muck it up, all right? So that's sort of the, the basic environmentalist picture. The, the, biblical, Christian, uh, the, the biblical perspective, uh, building out of Genesis 128, where God, having created man, Adam and Eve in his own image and blessed them, said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that moves on the face of the earth. Well, there would be no subduing, there would be no need for, uh, for dominion if indeed the earth were this uh, delicate and highly nurturing system that would meet all our needs if we just let it alone. Uh, the need for subduing and ruling comes from the very fact that the earth is, in fact, not a delicate place. It's a rather robust, resilient place, and it's not a particularly nurturing place. Uh, imagine, imagine being born to, uh, to a woman deep in the jungles of the Brazilian rainforest 
where there's no electricity, where there are there, there's no gasoline or diesel, there's no coal, there's no, uh, uh, frankly, clothing, shelter. Uh, there are no crops being being uh, uh, cultivated and and harvested. Uh, you don't have massive food uh, processing plants or anything like that. Imagine being born into that, into <laughs> raw nature as it is. Is that nature going to be nurturing to you? Mm. No. I mean, <laughs> nature is not a naturally nurturing place. It is, in fact, a very, very dangerous place, but a place with tremendous potential if we human beings follow God's instruction for us to subdue and rule it, to subdue and rule it in a way that is, is godly, that is, is honoring to the Lord, that, that uh, looks after our neighbors, that incorporates the two commandments to love God and to love neighbor, the two great commandments, uh, that, that really reflects God's own dominion uh, shown in the early part of Genesis 1, where God starts with nothing and he gets everything, right? God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, he brings light out of darkness, light being a symbol in Scripture over and over again for understanding, wisdom, truth, uh, uh, knowledge. And then he brings uh, order out of chaos, greater order out of less order, life out of non-life, a great variety of life, a great abundance of life. He tells each type of life to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, and then he crowns it all with creating human beings in his own image. Well, our dominion should reflect his so that we, uh, we, we, uh, we do things in terms of, of proper understanding of God's creation, uh, truth, wisdom, and we bring order out of uh, greater order out of lesser order. We bring uh, uh, life out of non-life and, and we increase the abundance and even the variety of life. All of these things are ways that we impact nature, but the fundamental perspective of most of the environmental movement is that our task is to impact nature as little as possible. But in order for humans really to flourish, in order for us to prosper, in order for us not just to survive, not just to barely get along, but to have uh, health and time to develop all the gifts that God gives us, the mental gifts, the physical gifts, the relational gifts, and everything else, in order to do that, we do have to impact nature, and that's what we're supposed to do. Well, all of that takes work, and if you remember from your your uh, elementary school uh, science class, what's the definition of, of energy? Well, energy is the... And um, we just lost connection on our Skype connection, and so what I did is called Cal right back, and um, so we'll continue now over the phone. Uh, Cal, you were saying that energy is the capacity, and that's when um, we lost our connection. So can you continue that train of thought? Right. Uh, what, a, what a great illustration this really is. Uh, energy, <laughs> the capacity to do work. Well, part of the work that we have is to communicate, and particularly communicating over a long distance requires energy. Uh, it requires the energy of our phones, over the phone network, or the internet, whatever. And uh, apparently my internet went down here in the midst of our call. But, you know, if we remember what we learned way back in grade school, energy is defined as the capacity to do work. Well, 
you know, if you've been around for more than, say, 10 years or so, you know that having food and clothing and shelter and transportation and communication and all kinds of other things. So what we find is that it simply takes an enormous amount of work to grow enough food to feed 8 billion people and clothe them and house them and move them around and move around all the different things that are important to them. That all takes energy because energy is the capacity to do work. Well, what that means is that we have to have a way of getting that energy and of making it useful to us. There's an enormous amount of energy that comes into the earth every second from the sun, but it's not directly usable for uh, harvesting plants, for you know driving a truck down the highway and mm. so on. Uh, there's energy in wind, but likewise. Uh, so there are various different sources, and what's crucial if we're going to have the vast amounts of, of abundant, affordable, reliable energy we need is that that energy comes from sources that are conducive to our refining them, our transforming them into the kind of energy, very high density, very... Uh, very highly uh, uh, what <laughs> energetic, <laughs> hardworking <laughs> energy that we need, uh, then, then uh, we, we really do have to pay attention as Christians to this question because it does come right back down to our basic worldview perspective. Uh, are we trying to minimize our impact on the earth or is our aim human flourishing, in which case, you're not trying to minimize your impact on the earth. You're trying to make your impact on the earth one that is beneficial to humans. Yes, right. Well, today we're talking with Dr. E. Calvin Beisner, president, founder, and national spokesman of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And um, this energy that we need is very important. And if we're going to be using fossil fuel, we have to extract it from the ground. There's some who are arguing that all that needs to be stopped. Mm -hmm. And we even have a president now who, uh, I don't know, first or second day in office, shut down the Keystone XL pipeline Mm -hmm. to appease those who um, feel that the earth is not so robust and feels that um, it would have hurt the earth to have that XL pipeline. And now we're seeing the ripple effect of that and other policies at the gas pump. <laughs> so I'm not yeah. very, I'm not very happy. I'll tell you that. Yeah. And what's happened is basically that people have been fooled into thinking that it really doesn't matter where we get our energy from. Uh, every source is as good as any other source. Well, that just simply is is mistaken. Wind and solar are very low-density sources of energy. They're also intermittent. It's not always windy. It's not always sunny. And consequently, uh, even just for electricity, which is actually a small portion, uh, well under half of all the energy that we use, even just for electricity, wind and solar are not as good a source as coal or natural gas or, in some places, uh, petroleum, uh, oil, um, because coal, natural gas, and petroleum are very, very high-density energy sources. 
and electricity is even higher density than those, but to go from low density to high density costs something. So the higher the density you start with, the lower the cost. And so that's why uh, coal and natural gas tend to be uh, much less costly. You, you notice, for example, that Germany, which uh, has spent uh, some trillion dollars trying to revamp its energy system, its electricity grid, to go from fossil fuels to, uh, to wind and solar, it managed to reduce its fossil fuel use from 86% to 74%. That's a 12-point reduction. Um, and that was over a period of a decade. Well, wow. well, if that's the best they can do over a decade with uh, three quarters of a trillion dollars worth of spending, uh, how much more is it going to cost for them to bring it down to, uh, you know, to fifty percent and then to net zero? Um, that's that's just crazy because. Uh, you know that what they did was they picked the low-hanging fruit first. They did the they did the easiest thing yes. to convert from from uh, from coal and natural gas to wind and solar, and now they're going to have to do harder and harder things all the way down the line. Uh, the same goes anywhere else. Uh, California in the U.S. has the highest percentage of wind and solar in their their electrical grid. And they also have the highest prices. Uh, they also are working really hard against the use of, of uh, fossil fuels for transport fuel. So what do they have? They've got far and away the highest gasoline prices in the United States. Now, you know, for very, very wealthy people, that doesn't really make too much difference. But for middle class people, for right. poor people, uh, that can be devastating. It can make the difference between... Being able to pay your heat bill in the winter and not being able to pay it. And frankly, cold snaps kill about 20 times as many people per day as do heat waves. And when people can't afford to heat their homes in the winter, you get a lot of extra deaths. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if people realize that um, most of our power comes from conventional power plants where they have a turbine, and the turbine is powered by steam. The mm -hmm. steam is generated from a heat source, and that heat source is either natural gas or oil or coal or nuclear. Mm -hmm. And so if you add up all those sources, I think you get around a huge percentage of our electricity comes from fossil fuel. If you go to all our energy, fossil fuel provides about 85% of it all. There you go. And then and then if you add <laughs> nuclear on top of that, uh, it's even a little bit higher. And so yeah. the, the embarrassing part here, as much as we have directed tax money to the alternate forms of energy creation, is that they're not doing very well on these giant no. fields. I mean, I've seen these. We've got one close to Ellenville yeah. where I live, uh, further south of where I live, and it's a giant field, and, you know, solar panel after solar panel, and I go past that. But, you know, if I go past it and it's just snowed, I think to myself, oh, um, they're not generating much power here today. <laughs> no, no. And I just drove through a good bit of Texas over the last couple of days and saw vast, vast uh, square miles of uh, wind turbines. And uh, T. Boone Pickens invested a lot in wind turbines, but mm -hmm. he was honest enough to say 
The only reason to build wind turbines is the subsidies. There you go. Otherwise, they're, <laughs> they're, they're a loser. And here's the, here's the case, is that uh, wind and solar are subsidized. In, in the case of solar, uh, actual government payments to those industries plus tax incentives that the government gives to those industries amount to 3,500 times as much per kilowatt hour of electricity generated as what they subsidize coal and natural gas. Actually, yes. they don't subsidize coal at all. And uh, for wind, it's, I believe, if I remember correctly, the, the figure is about 400 times as much per kilowatt hour electricity subsidized. But the, uh, the fascinating thing is that after some 50 years of working on this through these subsidies, we've only got wind and solar up to where they provide together about 3% of the electricity that we use in the United States. That, that is remarkable. Yeah. And, it, and, yeah. it, and it, I'll be honest, it, it irritates me because here's tax money being applied to this, and we can't do that forever. We can't keep no. turning around from really what's happening is somebody's paying who maybe doesn't have solar cells somebody's a pain who doesn't have an interest in in Absolutely. a, in a tur- you know a, a windmill um and then somebody else is benefiting from them paying it's it's quite a mess yeah. actually yeah and the benefit goes to the wealthy who tend to be able oh, to afford yes. those things oh, yes. from the non-wealthy who can't afford those things so you get a government subsidy when you buy an electric car right oh yeah well, the average electric car costs about $10,000 more than a similar car that's not electric. Yes. So who's going to be buying that electric car? The wealthy people are, not the poor people. So yep. uh, where's the subsidy coming from? Where's it going? It's going mm. from the poor to the rich. Yeah. It's the opposite of what, what progressives tell, tell us they want. They want, to, they want to redistribute wealth from the wealthy to the poor. They're actually redistributing wealth from the poor to the wealthy. You know, I I, uh, I saw a project um, probably in the past year. Um, it's a house not far from ours, and the owner, and I have no problem with this, uh, decided to invest very, very heavily, replacing the roof with shingles, each of them a solar panel, um, mm-hmm. on the house and also on the garage, and then Tesla batteries. And then you know, one of the things I noticed was that they basically hired an army of people to come in for a week or two. There was trucks and cars all over the place, and the mm-hmm. Tesla logo was on the side of a couple of trucks. And they worked to transform this place so that everything is solar on the roofs, and um, then they got the special batteries. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm looking at... M- massive amount of investment uh money that sure. most people most people can't possibly afford this yeah because they went all out and again i have no problem if if a person wants to do that and they're well off and they feel that it's something they want to do that's fine but uh, it's the same problem i have here which i've got a smaller solar setup and uh when there's snow on those cells i i check uh, just in the last uh, half a year, I checked on a day we got snow, and sure enough, zero watts was coming in. <laughs> and, right. And, and right. oh, my. And, and 
It's so frustrating when people think that this is a panacea, and then, but then here, here, here's the other thing. I have no problem with carbon dioxide. I mean, the elites are assuming something here, and I think it's very dangerous that a a little extra that a little extra carbon dioxide is going to send us into the dark ages. Whereas what I see is. The trees out back and my grass and our garden, it loves carbon dioxide. And, you know, it, and I don't, here's the key. I do not think, and maybe I'm wrong, I don't think that human-produced carbon dioxide is the main control lever affecting so-called climate change. Absolutely right. Um, several different things to pick up on there. First, yeah, carbon dioxide is absolutely essential to photosynthesis. Uh, when you double the amount of carbon dioxide in the air in which any given plant is, is growing, on average, you'll get a 35% increase in plant growth efficiency. Mm. They'll use less water, which means they can grow in drier places, but they also uh, grow more efficiently, so it doesn't matter if they have too much water around. They don't drown as easily. Uh, they grow better in warmer and cooler temperatures, so they expand their ranges. And that means that the range of all the different critters that depend on them can expand as well. So if you're worried about biodiversity, well, uh, adding CO2 to the atmosphere to expand the range of plants is a great thing. But then if you're worried, too, about feeding all the animals and all the people in the world, Well, when plants have more CO2, they also improve their fruit-to-fiber ratio, so crop yields rise, so everything's got more to eat, and this especially means that uh, food becomes less expensive for the poor around the world. Uh, NASA satellite imagery has shown that we've increased uh, leaf surface, leaf index surface around the world by some 30% over about the last 40 years. That's that's amazing, and it's pretty much all due to increased CO2 in the atmosphere. <laughs> so CO2 is not a problem. It's, it's a great benefit, and you're right. It, does not, it is not the control knob for temperature. Uh, CO2, actually, if we look at long-term uh, geological data, CO2 follows temperature. It doesn't lead it. Hmm. Uh, on fairly short terms, uh, short scales, it tends to follow by about 8 to 20 years. On longer scales, it follows by about 800 to 1,200 years. Mm. Um, And what that indicates is it's a a part of the laws of physics. Uh, One of those laws, uh, Moore's law of gases, uh, a liquid will sequester more of a gas at a colder temperature than at a higher one. So if the oceans warm a little bit, they expel some CO2. That means that CO2 levels in the atmosphere rise. So uh, there are a variety of different natural cycles that change ocean surface temperatures and thus change CO2 levels in the atmosphere. I'm not saying that our burning fossil fuels has not contributed to the increase in CO2 in the atmosphere. And I'm not even saying that when we increase CO2 in the atmosphere, we don't make it warmer than it otherwise would be. We do. That's some pretty basic physics. Sure. But it's a long way from that basic physics to we're going to cause catastrophic warming 
that's going to be an existential threat to humanity and to other life on Earth. That is not the case. Instead, the warming is, is relatively moderate, and everything we know from geologic and biologic history is that life thrives much better on a warmer planet than on a colder planet. <laughs> Furthermore, this warming happens primarily toward the poles in the winter at night, not toward the equator in the summer in the daytime. Ah, uh-huh, interesting. So cold temperatures rise a lot more than high temperatures rise. That's why the average temperature in the world is rising, not because every place is getting warmer, but because cold places at the cold time of the year in the cold time of the day are getting warmer. And that's good, 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 because it means fewer severe cold snaps, which means fewer deaths from cold snaps. Oh, that's uh, so that's all good stuff. That's a big deal. Now, I wish we could talk for an hour, but uh, we just ran out of time. Um, this is fascinating stuff. We're talking with Dr. E. Calvin Beisner today. Um, really quick, before we have to leave, Cal, can you give us information on the website and and also yeah. information? Maybe there's a book that someone is um, on the fence and they're saying, you know, I've never yeah. considered this stuff for the first time. What book might they read? Well, there's a really wonderful one called uh, State of the Climate 2021, State of the Climate 2021, uh, that we are offering actually completely free as a way of saying thank you when people make a donation of literally any size, doesn't matter how small. Of course, we'd like for it to be large, uh, <laughs> but we are, we are a nonprofit 501c3 organization, uh, 100% tax-deductible donation of any size if somebody makes it and asks for State of the Climate 2021. We'll be glad to send it to them free of charge. Uh, all they need to do is go to cornwallalliance.org. That's cornwallalliance.org, where they can read hundreds of articles and major papers and the like. Click on the Donate button, and as they fill out the donation form, just write in uh, State of the Climate 2021. We'll be glad to send them a copy. They can also find us on Facebook and our YouTube channel, and we have a podcast called Created to Rain. That's Created to Rain, and uh, that comes out once a week. And uh, we hope that that's really helpful to people as well. Oh, that is wonderful. I wish we could talk longer, but we are out of time. Dr. E. Calvin Beisner, thank you so much from the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you very much, Dan. God bless. You too. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.